0: they actually built a machine that is very predictable for them because they now have recurring revenues. And because they're doing this so well, and they have a very low churn rate, <laughs> it's an incredibly powerful business. And they got acquired for over, I don't know, billion dollars or $2 billion. It's pretty amazing. So you could say, well, that was just a channel innovation, but it was a disintermediation Where they did change the heart of it, I call that the epicenter, was the channel, but the entire business model changed.
1: Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate thanks for listening and i hope you enjoyed today's show this is part two of our interview with alex osterwalder alex in part one we talked about your best selling books and the strategy work you do around the world and the hbr article hbr articles and and all the fun things you've done but we were we were leaving off talking about interviewing customers and running experiments specifically around Jobs, pains, and gains, and and maybe having our product or our service be the secondary thing that comes in later, and and what I feel like you're what I feel like you're teaching is this idea of getting much more in tune with the customer first, instead of trying to figure out how to how to get the customer to buy what we want them to buy. Can you talk about this idea of gains? So I'm doing an interview. I'm I'm asking kind of classic jobs to be done type questions. We, we talked a bit about pains and the anchors under the boat. Can you talk about gains, the kind of questions that have been really helpful in asking people about gains?
0: Yeah, so let me give you an example, You know, very concrete job to be done, right? So somebody might tell you, oh, we need to innovate and grow our business. Okay, that sounds pretty good, but it's very fuzzy. That's actually just, that's a job to be done, but you don't know what success looks like for the person you just talked to. So then you need to ask, Okay, how do you know you succeeded? How does success look like if you are actually innovating? They might tell you, oh, if I can cut costs by 10%. Well, that was unexpected. I didn't think we would talk about cost cutting when we talk about innovation. Or somebody might say, we need to create a new growth engine for our business that produces, you know, revenues of $100 million. So you need to really get concrete, quantitative on What does a positive good outcome look like from that job being done well? So people actually stop too short, you know, before understanding what are the results that these customers are trying to get. So the job is the task, the job to be done. That's what they're trying to achieve. And then the gains are the concrete outcomes that they're looking for. Or let me take a a very abstract, you know, something that's kind of hard to measure. You'd say, somebody says, oh, um, I'm interested in fashion. I want to buy fashion because I want to look good. Okay, job to be done seems kind of clear. But how do you know? How do they know if they're actually succeeding? So the next question is: w- would be, how do you know that you're actually looking good? Oh, if I get, you know, at least one compliment from my partner, you know, per week, <laughs> then that's maybe a success criteria. Others might say, oh, I want my coworkers, you know, to make me compliment. So you start to ask, what does a positive outcome look like for this relatively abstract fuzzy job? Like, okay, I'm buying fashion because I want to look good. You didn't understand anything if you stop there. So you need to go further. You might actually, even for the job itself, ask why. Okay. Why do you want to look good? Well, because, you know, positive kind of appearance in my company is really important. Why is that important? Oh, because nobody who who dresses badly has advanced in this business you might want to maybe change the company, but, (laughs) but you want to understand deeply the underlying motivations in terms of jobs, but then very concrete outcomes. If you don't have that deep understanding, almost quantitative at the very least, least concrete instances of your customers, you don't actually understand customers. And from what I see, our customer understanding is usually very superficial. Even companies that say, oh, we're very customer centric, they can't tell me what are the most important jobs. They can't tell me what are the, you know, quantitatively the biggest gains, the biggest pains. So I think we're just at the beginning of developing these deep and profound customer understandings. So there's a lot that can be done there. And in the book, you know, Testing Business Ideas, together with David Bland, we outline a lot of techniques which go way beyond even, you know, the the typical kind of customer interview. That's just a starting point. Very weak evidence, good start, but that's not enough, right? There are tons of other techniques that you can use to validate jobs, pains, and gains of customers.
1: So I'd love to use some real-life example of what my, my team and I are going through right now. So for us, the product is an investment itself. That is the product, right? The customer is the investor. And we're doing a 506C offering, which means we can generally solicit a private investment, okay? And we're, we're looking for, for people who want to own, accredited investors who want to own part of the investment management company with us, right? They want to make the money from that. So rather than going to venture capitalists or people like that who need to get out, we're looking for people that want, you know, lifelong income where these management performance fees on a perpetual life fund that doesn't end. They want to, they want those fees, you know, for decades to come like us. Right. And so we're targeting, you know, wealthy entrepreneurs, you know, maybe doctors, lawyers, people who are credit investors. And they very often don't have like the investment mandate. You know, our VC friends and people we have on this show are VCs. They've got very defined mandates. They know what they're looking for. They know the return profile they're looking for. Where this client that we're working with now, it's much less defined. Uh, it's much more of an emotional decision sometimes. And And so just even with that very basic approach, I'm interested in what kind of questions you would ask us for Discovery on our feasibility, viability, desirability. And let's start with desirability, for instance.
0: So I would definitely start, before even ta- thinking about your investment vehicles and how they create value, deep understanding of the customer profile. So, okay, understanding what are the jobs there? You know, it might actually be that not all of them are functional jobs. So in investment, and you know, this might not apply to you, but if I generalize a little bit, in investment, there's a functional job which might be related to return, might be related to you know, um, putting aside money for the future. But there are also other jobs, not just functional ones, right? There might be the emotional job. If I invest in a startup, guess what? I know I'm probably going to lose the money because early stage investments in startups, like if you don't do that you know, across a bigger portfolio, you're probably going to lose it. So it's, for me, it's not the functional job. It's actually the emotional job of having some fun, And being connected with the uh, entrepreneurs and, you know, enabling them and giving them a possibility, maybe even sharing some of uh, the things I've learned that I've screwed up. That's an emotional job, right? So starting to understand what are the emotional jobs related to that. Or in investment, same thing. You start to look at the social jobs. So why do some people go to certain private banks and not others? Because they might actually have a social job underlying that you know, depending which bank you go to as a, you know, for private banks might actually, you know, signal social success. And that might be important to you or not, right? Maybe it's the contrary. Say, no, no, no. I want to go to this crazy new bank that nobody knows. So I have a better story to tell. Guess what? Being able to tell a story, that's a social job, right? Because I want to brag or I want to look interesting or whatever, So understanding the different types of jobs from functional to emotional to social, and even the kind of uh, supporting jobs. Like, okay, when I invest, I want to be able to track my portfolio every single minute, right? That's, that's a supporting job. It's not really a functional job. It's, it's really more the supporting one. So just going deep on those is already a, a, a strong kind of beginning. And then, developing the pains and gains related to those jobs will give you a very, very rich picture. And then you can start to ask yourself, okay, does our product actually really create value for this particular customer? Make sense? Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. It actually brings up another
1: question that I have about if you come up with something genuinely different, and people have in their mind how it works already, and any thoughts about helping them helping them recognize something that doesn't fit into their previous conceptions. So, like for instance, you brought up pretty much every time you're investing in a startup, you're we're, we're gambling, risking it all, right? Hey, maybe we'll get super rich, but we're gambling, losing it all. Well, we intentionally did something different than any other management company we've ever seen of our friends who are getting in at this management company level, we're not actually spending their money. We're buying a separate set of commercial real estate buildings with no debt. And we only risk the rent from those buildings on overhead. So that if I do fail, they're collateralized. They just keep their own buildings and sell them and get their money back. Right. So it's like, it's kind of this idea of like, what's the most, like I want to invest in something that has a potential of a really high upside if it works out. But instead of a downside of zero, I want a downside of my money back. Right. And yet when we talk to people, they don't know where to put us because we're not a boring income investment that's very capped and we're not a risk-at-all type of investment. And and I think we have a real struggle communication-wise helping them understand, like, hey, this is a different category. We don't have quite the upside of the biggest big ones that risk it all, but we have a huge multiple, like many, many times more than like a boring income investment.
0: Any thoughts about that problem? Yeah, and that's where I would refer... To Bob Moesta's work, right, in, in the sense that, so you're when you come up with something new that people can't uh, classify completely yet, you're in the business of behavioral change, right? That's one of the hardest things. So on paper, <laughs> logically, yeah, but on paper, logically, you say that makes a lot of sense. Like, why the heck are they not, you know, more interested? Well, because you're talking behavioral change. So. What you want to use is the framework. I don't remember how he calls it right now, but the the framework that Bob Moesta has, where you're looking at the forces (laughs) that get people to change or that, you know, hold them back to not change, right? Because they're stuck with the existing solutions. So there you start to look at what is holding them back and what is actually pulling them towards our solution. Once you have a good understanding of that, you can start to formulate your message in a different way. So it's understanding those push and pull forces, which will allow you to better articulate your solution. So again, you know, whatever makes logical sense, that's the entrepreneurial perspective. Of course, customers need to love our product is great. (laughs) But if we don't have a deep understanding of how customers make decisions, so that's an additional layer, not just is it useful Mm. to them, but how are they going to make the buying decision? That's a completely different thing, right? So that's then in the process of buying. And there, Bob's work is really powerful because he starts to look at that, that buying decision. And you get to really start to understand that when you look at their past buying decisions. How did they actually make that decision based on which criteria? And what's interesting is you, you might actually see a mismatch between their customer profile what they rationally think and how they look at the product itself and what they want. And then their buying decision might be, you know, disconnected from the customer profile you just mapped out. So at the end of the day, you need to have something that works for the customer profile, because if they buy once and then the product or service doesn't work, they're not going to be happy. So you first need to get the product or service right. And then the second thing is you need to start to figure out how to acquire them. But that's a different thing. So, you know, what we like to say is there are a lot of things that need to be true for an idea to work. We call that a hypothesis. Here, you're, you have two things. One is that the product or service actually creates value. There's a whole set of hypotheses around that. But then there's a whole hy- set of hypotheses around the purchasing decision and how they make that is around acquisition in which context do you acquire them they might tell you oh but you know if you started selling those products through my established bank because i have a good relationship with them the whole thing might change same product or service okay but a completely different acquisition context but that's a different type of, of hypothesis you're testing that's the acquisition hypothesis So we need to kind of always think that there's this big idea and we're breaking the big idea down into smaller risk chunks. And we test one after the other. Just because your product or service creates value doesn't mean you're going to be able to sell them because selling is related to channels. Do you have those channels, right? Maybe they'll say, I'm never going to buy a product that doesn't come from my, you know, trusted bank banking advisor. So now you're learning about the acquisition, but you don't need to think acquisition until you have a product that actually works. So you're not going to test everything at the same time. Take a big idea, it, break it down into smaller chunks. Testing the acquisition and the scaling of the acquisition comes after you've actually tested desirability in terms of does the customer, does the product even create value?
1: You know, that's super helpful, by the way. And it, it actually makes me go back to your boat and anchors example, again, because to me, those ideas of I'm not going to buy it if it doesn't come through my bank, that that's a big anchor potentially, right? And there's something about the visual that you laid out there that really works for me. So I appreciate that. Well, shifting gears just a little bit, I want to talk about innovation and your work and your books and how it might apply You know, very often in innovation, people are coming up with a new product that doesn't exist, a new service that doesn't exist. And yet sometimes there's opportunities where the product or service didn't change. It was the delivery or it was the financing or like Hilti, it was the management of the tool, tool, same tool, right? So thinking about that direction of somebody who is trying to, they're trying to bring a product that. People really like somewhere else, but just has never been marketed to this market segment, right? It it appears to meet their priorities and stuff, but it's been it's never been marketed in that channel before, so they're they're trying to expand the market on something that's done very well very well elsewhere. What kind of discovery questions? What kind of discovery process would you have about we're not we're not fixing a product, we're not even changing a product, we're just experimenting with channels.
0: But I'll, I'll put a, a slightly different twist on it. Okay. And, and, and push it in a, a slightly different direction. So there are a couple of innovation myths. And one myth is, you know, to innovate, I need technology innovation. I need to come up with something radically new with better technology. One of my favorite examples is Nintendo when they launched the Nintendo Wii. Because they basically launched an inferior game console from a technological point of view. It was all off-the-shelf technology. It was non-proprietary. Now, motion control, which was the fun part of the Nintendo Wii, was non-proprietary. It already existed in the market. It was nothing revolutionary. It was there. So what did they do? And this comes back a little bit to your question. They targeted an underserved market of casual gamers. And what did they learn? Casual gamers, they don't care about processing power and they don't care about graphics. So you didn't need... An incredible game console. Because like, at the time, you know, Sony, PlayStation 2, and the Xbox, those were machines that could launch, you know, rockets. So they had export restrictions so they wouldn't go to rogue countries, right? So think of it. Then comes Nintendo with an inferior technological platform. The Nintendo Wii targets casual gamers, which is a huge market. And here's the thing. They created an insanely profitable business model. Because while Sony with the PlayStation 2 and Xbox, they were subsidizing each console sold. They were actually losing money because they were trying to acquire hardcore gamers who cared about the technology so they could sell games afterwards, which was their revenue stream. Here comes Nintendo and says, no, 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 we're going to sell these cheap things and we're going to make money from it. And we're going to use the traditional revenue stream, which is licenses or royalties from games. So they created a profit-spitting machine with inferior technology. So this reflex we have, we need to create this crazy new thing that's outstanding from a technological point of view, is just not true. There are many innovations that can succeed even with inferior technology. Now, don't get me wrong, technology is great and it can be an enabler of innovation, but it's not a requirement. Technology-based innovations are a small subset of the bigger one. The bigger one is value creation. And now I'm getting back to your question. There are many ways to create value. Maybe you serve an underserved market, like we just said. Maybe you create a new channel that just, you know, is more convenient. And of course, what comes to mind if you're a man and you have to shave every day, <laughs> you, you know, you have to buy gillette razors or whatever other brand you you like. It's super expensive and it's annoying because you have to go to the shop and you have to ask the people to unlock the box where everything is locked in. Then comes Dollar Shave Club with a you know relatively basic set of uh, razors, but makes the whole process more convenient. So there they changed, you could say the channel, but they actually changed the whole business model in the process because they made it convenient for the customer. And because now they created a subscription, they actually built a machine that is very predictable for them because they now have recurring revenues. And because they're doing this so well and they have a very low churn rate, <laughs> they, it's an incredibly powerful business. And they got acquired for over, I don't know, a billion dollars or $2 billion. It was pretty amazing. So you could say, well, that was just a channel innovation, but it was a disintermediation where they did change the heart of it. You could, I call that the epicenter was the channel, but the entire business model changed. So what we like to say is, don't just focus on products. Focus on all the different ways you could improve the business model. Sometimes it's a tweak to the channel. Sometimes the tweak to the channel requires other changes like we've seen with Dollar Shave Club. But always keep in mind the business model. I think the problem today is too many innovators and entrepreneurs are focused on product innovation or technology innovation or cheaper price. What they forget is that is very hard innovation to defend. You can come up with a great product. Tomorrow, you'll have the same product from 10 other suppliers, right? So what you already want to think from day one is how can I build a moat, a business model moat around this product? So that's why we came up with the whole idea of business small patterns. So we get entrepreneurs and innovators to immediately ask business small questions. Too few innovators and entrepreneurs think business small questions. And if you look at the most successful companies out there, guess what? Almost all of them innovate on the business model, not just the product even take Apple, you see the product innovation, but guess what over the history since Steve Jobs came back, they went through several business model iterations that's what kept them ahead now in their case, of course, there was technology innovation at the center, but without the business model innovation, they wouldn't be you know at the top of their game
1: can you can you talk more about this about the creating moats and just best practices or ideas for startups and smaller yeah. growing companies
0: so I'll give you a silly example, you know, a historic one. because I, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting one. Maybe the younger one, the younger listeners can't even connect to that anymore. But there used to be a thing called the iPod, right? And when Steve Jobs launched the iPod, he famously said, it's the first time we can put thousand songs in a pocket. And that was technologically hard. There was hardware and software innovation that made that possible. So what you see is a technology innovation. What you don't see is that the business model changed and it was a a strategic business model play. So here's what went on in the background. Steve Jobs and Apple wanted people to put thousand songs into iTunes onto the iPod. Why? Because that creates switching costs. It creates friction because once you have all your music library in one digital device, it's super annoying to switch to a different ecosystem. So guess what? All of a sudden you're locked in. We call this gravity creators that's a business model play. You create switching costs, not with a contract, but in a very positive way. And what happened is, I believe this is the foundation of Apple's you know, empire today, is because they started creating switching costs with the music you would copy onto your iPod. Now of course they needed to change other things in the business model, which no other digital music player did at the time. They needed to make contracts with the record companies. So Steve Jobs convinced the record companies to allow them to sell music, but they didn't want to make money from music. That was not their goal. Their goal was only to get everybody to put their music on the iPod. Wow! So. We don't see the business small play all the time because we're educated to see product and technology innovation. But that was the foundation, I believe, of the empire of Apple today. Because when they shifted from selling iPods and music, they shifted with the iPhone to a platform model. So what was the business small innovation there? Well, guess what? Now you have the App Store and you have developers And that is something you can't replicate. So what's powerful, you know, it's very hard. And now Apple's in trouble with uh, antitrust because they're so powerful. It's not the device. Somebody could make a phone that's 10 times better than an Apple phone today, but you could not overnight replicate the number of applications and the number of developers. So those are all business model moats. And if you get good at understanding those moats. You can design them from day one. And that's what entrepreneurs need to learn more. Of course, you need a great product to start, to even have a chance, a fighting chance. But if you have a better business model, I can tell you, even inferior products can sometimes outcompete everybody else because you have a better business model. I love it. You know,
1: I feel like we've covered a lot of ground here. I know you get interviewed all the time. What's a question for, for startups or growing small businesses that I didn't ask? What should I have asked?
0: Why are you doing all of this, right? I mean, you know, and I like, I think startups need to find, and uh, startup entrepreneurs should find their motivation. And, you know, a lot of people love the Simon Sinek stuff, right? The why. But I think there's, there's something more important there, why you need to ask the why question is, and I made this mistake up front, right? So we kind of become entrepreneurs, and we don't realize the difference between, Sometimes Silicon Valley would condescendently call this a lifestyle business or a scalable business. But I think it's an important choice, right? And that will be the choice that you need to make before you raise venture capital. Because once you've raised money, you are automatically in the category you have to scale. So it's too late to change your mind. It's kind of hard. Buffer actually did it. So they bought out their shares because they said, no, we don't want to be in this crazy scaling game anymore ultra profitable, very high margins, but we don't want to scale for the sake of scaling. But once you take on venture capital, guess what? The business model of the VC is the exit. So you're, you're condemned to scale. So before you make that decision, try to figure out, are you in it for a 5 million, 10 million, $50 million business? Then you can actually bootstrap and you might not need venture capital. If you really want to scale and you're excited about that, and you know everything that comes with it because it's really hard and once you have investors, you know you better deliver because otherwise you're out as a founder or CEO right? so make that decision first. now why are you doing this? Do you want to create a good business solid but you're not in it for the scaling for this you know multi you know hundred million or billion dollar business or are you really in it to do that? That's one aspect of why. The second aspect of why is, you know, are you in it to build a business and become rich? Probably most entrepreneurs actually don't fall in those, that category, those who want to be successful. They're driven by something. And maybe you want to figure out, you know, are you building a business because you also want to create impact in terms of a great workplace? So you're not going to cut corners when it comes uh, to the way you treat your team. It, you don't um, cut corners when it comes to the way you act in society. So finding the kind of the deeper underlying motivation of why you're doing this. And I don't you know. This is not a moral kind of thing where I'm saying you have to do this or this is right, this is wrong. No, no value judgment. You just need to get clear on that. So you pursue the right thing. And companies I get excited about is companies that create value for customers, for the business, for their people, for the team and for society. Is that, you know, something everybody needs to do? No, it's what I believe a great company is, but that's my moral understanding of what I want to do for my company not telling anybody else, maybe when it comes to the environment, we should all think a little bit more because <laughs> our kids all live in the same environment. But you know, figuring out what you really want, I think is, is really, really important before you make decisions of no return, because some decisions are not reversible. Take on venture capital, very hard to reverse possible, but hard. Sorry, that was a long answer. But I think it's an important question. <laughs> No, I think that's great. Well,
1: I want to be respectful of your time. Besides having everybody go to strategizer.com and check out the apps and the books and the services, which I highly recommend. Anything else you want to leave people with?
0: Yeah, just go out and try, right? And, and fight against those innovation myths. I think we're in a process in a, in a, at a stage of innovation where everything is becoming more professional. It's becoming a discipline. So it's not just this belief. Oh, I do lean startup. Well, okay, show me the processes and tools you use. This is becoming a discipline. So I think we all need to kind of move towards making this a discipline. And that's what I'm excited about. So I hope you get excited about this kind of move towards more of a profession as well. Some like the cowboy state, you know, and it's more like, okay, it's adventure. Everything is open. Nobody has figured it out. I think when it comes to innovation and entrepreneurship, we actually figured out quite a lot. So we need to now start being more professional and using those processes and tools, which might for some people become a little bit boring because we we figured out a lot of the answers. Not all of them, but quite a few. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Great questions and congratulations for the work you've done so far. So thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, you bet. Bye, everyone.